0: As a uh, adjustment to the announcements, um, the fellowship lunch is on both the 8th and the 15th. I was just handed that information, so make note of that. And welcome. As you can tell, my voice is awesome today. As you can see my paraphernalia, I have come prepared because, and I apologize, but it could get gross up here. Just FYI, so I'm going to do this. It's things like this that just make what you need to do hard because you don't you don't want it to be that way. Adulting is hard. Have you noticed that? Adulting is terribly hard. Pretending to be a functioning adult is exhausting. 100% of the time, I don't. I don't know how we do it. We pretend we're all grown up, but we're all 18 in our heads pretending to be as old as we look. But it's just not the case. And some days, no matter how hard we try, it just does not go well. I keep raising this up because apparently my eyes are getting old and I keep looking at this and I can't read what I have here. Someone else mentioned that. How can you read that? And I said, oh, it'll be fine. And I'm like, does it go taller? But you try to function well, and it just doesn't always happen the way you want. Like, you have limited time, and you want to cook some food on the stove. And then you spend the next 23 minutes heating up exactly nothing because you turned on the wrong burner. (laughs) Tell me I'm not the only one who has done that. Or this guy who decided to do laundry one day. It went poorly. Myself, I can do things like pay my bills and stuff, like all by myself now. But I still have to say righty tidy lefty loosey every time I grab a tool and try to fix anything, because I can't remember. There was this one time in the first church district that I pastored in. <laughs> This will give you an insight into just how ridiculous I am sometimes. We were trying to get out of the house, as you do on a Saturday morning, because you're preaching, and I'm like, all right, get my stuff on. I'm ready to go, and I'm waiting for Nirma. Now, just wait for it. It gets better. And I'm frustrated, because I'm ready to go, and she's... I don't know, doing her hair, putting on shoes, being pretty. I don't know what she was doing. But she wasn't in the car where I wanted to be. So I'm like, you know what, I'm not waiting anymore. I'm just going to go out, get in the car, pull it in the driveway, and I'm going to wait there and then stare at her, you know, meaningfully when she comes out. So I walk out into the garage, open up the garage door, you know, and the garage door comes up, the breeze comes in, and I'm like, Man, I'm really feeling that breeze. And I looked down, and I'm not wearing any pants. I had managed to put on my shirt, tied the tie, put the vest of my three-piece suit on, the jacket, walked into the kitchen with my socks and shoes, put the socks on, put the shoes on, tied them. Never noticed I had not put pants on because I was so focused on what she was doing, I did not pay attention to what I was supposed to be doing. I hope none of you have ever done that. See, one of the hallmarks of not adulting well is being so focused on what everybody else is doing that I'm not paying attention to my own stuff. And this story illustrates a problem we all struggle with as Christians and will ultimately connect us to the core problem um, <clears throat> excuse me. that we talk about in our Amos chapters, and it's this. We get so worried about what the devil is doing and what other people are doing and how to properly blame someone else for any given thing that we never take time to examine ourselves. It's not my fault. The devil made me do it. Look in James chapter 1. It's page 1113 in your Pew Bibles if you wish to use those. Go to James chapter 1 for me. Verses 13 to 15. And they read like this Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own actions. It own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When we display poor attitudes, or in general, conduct ourselves poorly, we are often full of reasons why it's not our fault. But here's the problem of free will, and we talked about that a while back. I get to choose. My actions are my own. It's on me. Whatever I do, I can't blame anyone else for my choices. Whatever the scenario, whatever the circumstance, it's on me. And in those moments, I am acting disconnected with God. I am act not acting in love that we were all designed to exist within. Like us, Israel didn't adult well. And when you break everything down, there was really only one task that they were given. When you parse through all the stuff, they had one thing to do. Live love. Maybe you've heard that before. But instead, they focused solely on a disconnected obedience, which they could never hope to maintain, devoid of the love required, to free them from the burden that a disconnected obedience places upon us. Now, you might ask, but didn't God give them all those lists and rules? Sure he did. It's what you do when you know the people don't actually care enough about the people around them to treat them with love and respect and do good things. You have to do that. It's the reason why any given code of conduct exists because without it, we know that there's always gonna be that one person that wants to exploit the freedom that they've been given and do ridiculous things. And the moment that that happens, everybody else feels that they have the license to as well. And everything goes downhill. But here's the hard part. It turns out, even with a grand set of rules, it still all goes downhill. If love and a connection with God and each other does not exist. And this is where we find ourselves in Amos. In chapter three, which is page 853 in your pew Bibles. He does all this discourse about the lion's roar, about traps springing, about trumpets blowing. And then he begins to make his point in verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? And here's an important point for us to understand, and it's not a new point, um, but the implications for Israel and us are pretty important, and it's this. None of this was new information. It's not like Israel had not heard this before. It's not like we haven't heard it before. It wasn't the first time. What happened in Amos had happened before. From the beginning God had spelled out that their motives mattered. They needed to be better people, not in simple conformity, but in transformative love. And the problem is then, just as now, that they didn't care. It never sunk in. So you get to verse 10, and you get to the heart of it. They do not know how to do right. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. And this is the issue. Everything else is God showing how upset he is that they still don't get it. And when you get into chapter 4, verse 1, he outlines what this is. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. That seems nice. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Now, for clarity... Bashan translates as a fertile, stoneless plain. Bashan was this place, and it was very well named, because its lands were exceedingly lush, and they were great for crops and for grazing. The cows who grazed there never went hungry. He's telling them that they're a bunch of fat, overfed cows stepping on whoever they need to So they could consume more even if it meant that others would have none. That sounds like people connected to God. Come to Bethel in verse 4 and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings Publish them, for you love to do so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Bethel and Gilgal were two famous and important holy sites. Bethel means house or temple of God. (coughs) Excuse me. And it was the site of one of the more important sanctuaries. Gilgal was where Samuel offered sacrifices and Israel renewed its covenant with Saul. Now, even though the people were faithful and they were lavish in their sacrifices and offerings, it was just another example of how disconnected they were. There was no love connection with their creator because it was all just a show. They were doing it so that they would look good, so they could tell everybody how generous and how pious they were, to publish them as they loved to do. They only cared about the veneer, about looking good, They liked the idea of looking good, but not so much about actually being good. They liked the idea of God, but didn't want to actually have to know God. They only wanted what God could do for them. And I wonder if that hits a little close to home for us today. Did we build our churches because we thought we were supposed to? Did we bring together a fantastic praise band because it made us feel good? Do we put out amazing snacks, like truly amazing stuff, you need to go try that, and tasty beverages out front so that we could all enjoy it ourselves and feel like we did something nice? We painted the walls, we built the stage, we put on the show, and then did we tell everybody how awesome we are and look at what we did? Now, I don't know if that's your truth today. I don't know if that's what's true here, but I feel like I need to ask that of myself. Where am I in that? Am I paying attention to where I'm sitting with God? Do I love God, or do I just like the idea of God? This is a concept we struggle with as humans. We like the idea of things so much more than the reality of things. Like running, for example. Um, I like the idea of moving gracefully like a gazelle with the speed of a cheetah for as long as I can, for miles at a time. The reality is that when I do so, I feel pain in my everywhere moving at the speed of a geriatric turtle for like 0.2 miles. And don't get me wrong, running is important, it's great exercise, it's good to be able to do such things, but what sane person loves running? (laughs) Nirma loves running and I do love her, so um, I will quit while I'm only a little behind. Let's try a different one. How about carob? <laughs> Who remembers carob? If you don't know what carob is, I envy you. <laughs> carob for a long time was touted as this great chocolate replacement, and let me assure you, it was not in any way. Because chocolate tastes like the like euphoric joy and the gentle massages of angels carob tastes like the inside of a diaper (laughs) I see some of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I was a kid my grandma used to love to bake us things she loved to bake and she would bake us cookies and so (coughs) excuse me this is awesome (coughs) she would bake us cookies unfortunately Grandma was, she was also a health nut of the old school Adventist variety. And if you don't know what that is, I envy you. (laughs) And she would declare she was going to make cookies. And she would be like, would you like me to make you cookies? And all us grandkids would be like, yes, we would do that. And she would say, are you sure? And we would say, chocolate chip? And she would look at us and go, sure. And then later on, she would come out with a plate of tasty-looking, cookie-shaped morsels, which would immediately turn into anger, resentment, and sadness after the first bite, because carob. Which, as it turns out, is a great metaphor for Israel's relationship with God. Israel, stay with me now, this is going to be great. Israel wanted to make cookies with God. But they kept substituting the superficial veneer of emptiness that is carob in place of the joyous love-filled chocolate in the cookie recipe. And then they'd feed it to God and get surprised when he didn't like it. At which point, God would declare his tummy was upset, warn them that he was about to get sick all over Israel. And that's Amos chapters 3 and 4. You're welcome. (laughs) But here's the good news. God never stopped coming back for that cookie. Even though he knew there was no chocolate in it. Even though he knew their actions, our actions, are sometimes selfish and lacking in love, he keeps coming back. He keeps choosing us. Because now, as then, we are God's people and that's amazing, and it makes us feel important, and that's okay. It's okay to feel important. But the downside is, sometimes, it makes us feel self-important. But God said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And after self-importance, we like to believe that it makes us more valuable than others. But Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, And while you're at it, love your enemies too. And we said, but we have the Sabbath. And God said, the only pure religion is to care for orphans and widows. And we make sure that we give generous offerings. But God said, your sacrifices are meaningless. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. See, the first half of those require merely some dedication and information, but the second half of those requires renovation and transformation. I want to close by sharing something that's kind of an open secret. Some of you know, some of you don't. It's not something that I've shared super publicly, but there are people who know. Almost four years ago now, the Boulder Church, in a moment of great insight and uh, shockingly good taste, hired me to be your youth pastor. Five months later, I resigned. Now, the story is that I had decided to go on and do non-church pastory things. And that's technically true, but it's not the whole truth. So the reason why The real reason was because I had arrived here broken. I shouldn't have tried. I shouldn't have come. I shouldn't have tried to do the thing that I was trying to do. Because after years of being battered by physical illness and circumstance, I had nothing left. God had been telling me that I needed to take care of things in here. And I wasn't listening. I felt that I could just push through it. And even though he felt I needed to take time to heal and deal with the pain and the disconnect, that it all resulted from it, I thought, no, it's fine, I'll just push through. I'm strong enough, I'm always fine. I don't need to listen to that, I'll just do it my way. I felt that I couldn't take the time and that I didn't need to. I didn't need to confide in anyone, I didn't need to talk to anyone, so I didn't. And then, on the morning of December 10, 2015, the decision was made for me. I got out of bed, walked to another room, and decided to pray, because that was my routine. Dreading the day, as was my custom, And as I started to pray, all I did was cry. And I cried for months. I just didn't stop. My brain said, you're all done now. You don't get to make the choice anymore. my psyche hit the reset button. It's time to reboot. It's time to do things differently. And all this happened because God had been telling me to take time to heal and reconnect, but I refused and believed that I was strong enough on my own that I didn't need help, that I didn't need the healing that reconnecting could offer. The good news is, for all of us, God never gives up. There's a reason why this is here. See? It worked out. God provided healing and the healers to provide it. He let me break and suffer the consequences of my actions. But then, He rebuilt me. He brought me to a place that is, in many ways, better than where I was. And I'm not done, and I probably never will be. I'm a work in progress, and I always will be. And that's the hopeful part for all of us, because the process never stops. The adulting never stops happening, the transformation never ends. No matter where we are, no matter how broken, disconnected. No matter how bad the suffering might be, God keeps coming back. God will keep choosing you. Hope is never gone.